This is podcast 20 in the series, and uh, it represents kind of a watershed. That is, it's a very new material, uh, but also I'm going to take a break now for one month after this podcast to sort of let the, let the sun shine in, uh, let the podcasts uh, develop whatever life of their own they're developing and uh, allow time for things to be absorbed and return around the 1st of December with Podcast 21. Now, this podcast is entitled, I Learned to Yodel, and that is the title of a hilarious and somewhat brilliant and almost crazy single that was sung by a Kilkenny-based Irishman named Jimmy Lennon. And this song, long ago, was produced by Joe Meek, the um, city of Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth, 304 Holloway Road, Islington, London, maverick producer, whom I admire so, and to me is such a way-shower in terms of great things coming out of extremely unusual and even absurd origins. But uh, Joe Meek produced a song called I Learned to Yodel, uh, sung by Jimmy Lennon and his backup group from Kilkenny, where there is, by the way, a very beautiful um, cathedral of the Church of Ireland. But the, um, that's really just a kind of a, of, a, of a surprise or a decoy, because the actual uh, podcast is really titled How to Meditate, because... Uh, uh, meditation, uh, formally speaking, and the formal use of that word as it's normally understood in regular practice and religious and secular life today, uh, has opened a very interesting window for me, not only on myself and uh, my own life, but uh, particularly for uh, this particular um, constituency and some of you who are also thinking about um, the issues of religion in relation to modern life. Meditation, as in I learned to yodel or I learned to meditate, has uh, opened a window to me on the nature of grace as opposed to inhibition or constraint and uh, clear seeing as opposed to artifice and uh, what in fact ancient thinkers often called idolatry. Well, that sounds awfully heavy uh, and big and panoramic, but I have been thinking about this now for about uh, uh, three years, and I'm going to talk a little bit today, uh, quoting, I learned to yodel, uh, rather I learned to meditate. And I'm going to do it initially, not by trying to teach any listener how to meditate, although one needs a teacher. It does not come naturally. It is quite counter-emotional and counter-mental in conventional thinking that we all have. You need a teacher, although you don't need a teacher to teach you forever. It's a short-term process with a very fructifying and open result. But I'm going to try to talk about meditation rather as why to learn rather than the what of it. I'm going to uh, talk about why um, uh, meditation is a very interesting spin or development or application of, believe it or not, justification by faith.
Well, if anything is true universally or is true in a large and wide way, it's got to be true specifically. So if there's anything to meditation that might uh, be true or actively uh, pertinent or uh, accurate to the way life is, well, then it would surely apply to any and all religious uh, thinking and observance and certainly to, in my case, Christianity. So I'm really going to talk about kind of an advertisement for meditation and why meditate. Now I'm going to do it by first reading a poem that Jack Kerouac wrote, who was a Catholic mystic, as you know, and he uh, wrote a very um, um, rather startling and typically um, oblique, uh, fun uh, poem, and I'm going to read it. It's almost like a sonnet, a little bit longer. How to Meditate. This is Kerouac in the 50s. Lights out, fall, hands a-clasped into instantaneous ecstasy, like a shot of heroin or morphine, the gland inside of my brain discharging the good glad fluid, holy fluid, as I hap down and hold all my body parts down to a dead stop trance, healing all my sicknesses, erasing all not even the shred of a I hope you or a loony balloon left in it, but the mind, blank, serene, thoughtless. When a thought comes a-springing from afar with its held-forth figure of image, you spoof it out, you spuff it off, you fake it, and it fades, and thought never comes. And with joy, you realize for the first time, thinking's just like not thinking so I don't have to think anymore. Now that poem uh, may seem like so much Greek to you, and uh, it's actually a very um, uh, short and sweet description of what meditation does, because what uh, the purpose of meditation is to um, limit the invasive uh, efficacy and active disturbing quality of thoughts, uh, images, uh, feelings and sensations on the equanimity of the human person. And meditation is not what many people uh, often uh, has, hear it caricatured to be. You know, focus all the energy of your body and your mind on your left toenail, uh, which we used to kind of... Uh, caricature it as, uh, but rather meditation is simply a way of addressing the numberless inward conversations which are unstoppable and seemingly impenetrable and irresistible that constantly intrude on peace of mind, whether these be voices, accusatory voices, angry voices, resentful voices, hurtful voices, um, disquisitional, distracting voices, lustful voices. You can name a million possibilities, whether it be images and pictures and past associations and all sorts of disturbing, as well as sometimes very um, beautiful, lubricious pictures uh, that take you off where you are trying to be right in the present, or they can be feelings, again, resentment and uh, <clears throat> furiousness and uh, uh, any number of uh, feelings, lornness, lostness, sadness, depression, which cut into the ability to appreciate the standing on the ground of the now and the here, or they can be simply sensations of anxiety and 
nervousness and throbbing and all the numbers of things that, uh, that again, are static in the life. And this is something that you'll possibly note. Uh, I was talking to somebody who was very sturdily against meditation the other day, a, a lovely older clergyman uh, acquaintance of mine from another country, actually. And, and uh, uh, he said, well, I could never stop all my inward conversations. My, my mind is going all the time. Well, I said to him, but that's the whole point. Uh, your mind is going all the time. It's like a it's like a churning out of numberless, often extraneous, unrelated, associative, and often unbecoming thoughts and disturbing and suppressing and sublimating ideas and just distracting things which need to be silenced so you can open your eyes to use an expression, open the heart, open the ears and the mind to what is actually in front of you. And this fellow sort of heard that. And I'm not going to tell you how to meditate, but I'm going to say that when he, uh, Kerouac, says, erasing all, not even the shred of a, I hope you, and when a thought comes a springing from afar with its held forth finger of image, you you spuff it out, you 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 erase it, you say to it, thought, and it fades, and then it doesn't come, and you discover that uh, your attention has been engrossed by an enormous amount of capricious and arbitrary material, which your past and your uh, future, but not your present, but your past and your thoughts of your future, your futurizing, are, are flooding your mind with. So that's Kerouac's poem, How to Meditate. Now, interestingly enough, I would like to follow that with just a word uh, from the same maestro who in October 1959 for Escapade magazine wrote a column uh, reflecting on how he, uh, this Catholic mystic, had felt after he had first, really through reading in a book, uh, meditated. And I'm going to just uh, read uh, this uh, little bit from this uh, 59 piece. It's, it's one of uh, Kerouac's really greatest religious pieces, short and sweet. My first meditation was a tremendous sensation of, when did I do this last? It seemed so natural, so right. Why didn't I do it before? And all things vanished. What was left was the stuff out of which all things appeared to be made of without being made into anything, really. And all things I then saw, continues Kerouac, as unsubstantial trickery of the mind. <clears throat> And uh, that's uh, the point. You don't need to get into the sort of further reaches of people who uh, go to town on meditation. Uh, but you can listen to, uh, I saw all things then as unsubstantial trickery of the mind. And I'm uh, working on the word trickery in this talk. Uh, a tremendous amount of what we hear and what we see and what we project is trickery. It's not true. I learned this in the parish ministry where people were perpetually projecting upon myself as the rector or the curate, but usually the rector or the dean or whatever position of authority I was uh, given in an institution. People were constantly relating to me quite differently than I was. They were relating to me characteristically as a father, sometimes a good father, which is not a bad thing, uh, but often a bad father, a negative father. And I was always puzzled by the tremendous rushes of anger 
anger that would come against me by what I thought were just difficult people in parishes over nothing. Tiny things, moving of the furniture in a church, changing the time of a Sunday service, um, nixing a, a particular activity which only had two people coming to it and was absorbing tremendous uh, attention on the staff for no fruit. But any number of tiny, what appeared to be to me, entirely tertiary concerns that became just totally engrossing. And I realized that I was really uh, slotting into some kind of other person than myself, a kind of impersonal father, usually, that, that was sort of holding the bag for somebody else's uh, uh, losses and uh, sufferings and deficits in their own background. There's nothing new about this. Psychiatry teaches about this. But if you ever go into a, uh, if you're a doctor or especially the clergy who are dealing with all volunteers, you will <clears throat> constantly run up against this phenomenon of titanic negative projection, which is what drives most people from the ministry or into some, some not good thing because they're so puzzled, so exhausted, so angered, so frustrated, so disappointed, and so shocked by the negativism that seems to come at them for no reason other than they're in a position of authority. I mean, think of what President Obama has to deal with every day. I mean, he, he seems to want the job. But uh, this uh, projection made me uh, realize that everybody was dealing with a tremendous amount of unsubstantial trickery of the mind, including myself, obviously. And uh, so many things, whether it's with Mary, whether with children, with parents, are uh, all inside the brain. And they often have very little... Um, um, substance in any kind of concrete reality. Well, I'm going to quote another uh, interesting figure. Now, not everybody's a fan of Harvey Cox, and I've uh, met him, and um, children I know of mine, of ours, have been taught by him, and he, we would call him today, in the light of um, his overall career, a man who is basically in the center of, of center slightly to the uh, right, just a, a degree to the right of absolute center in American Protestant Christianity, because he uh, it pioneered all sorts of new ideas and new thoughts and new paradigms and uh, all that. But he um, he he often evinced a kind of he, he was a real sort of Jesus Christian who understood the tradition of of the Orthodox uh, Protestant movement going way way back. Uh, however, he became quite disturbed in the early seventies with all the what he called the new Orientalism at that time. That's what it was called. He became disturbed by all the young people, sort of the hippies and the former hippies, who were going east or turning east. And he was so puzzled and rather annoyed by a lot of young people who were chucking their uh, formal religious backgrounds in the Christian faith, Catholic and Protestant uh, and Jewish, but especially he was interested in those from the Christian side of it, that he decided to sort of try to understand uh, this phenomenon. And he went to the Naropa Institute in Denver, and he did a good thing. He, he spent a summer there and uh, taught as a Harvard Divinity School professor, and he tried to understand what was going on with a sort of American turn eastward, which is now sort of everywhere. It's now become kind of a secular uh, given for people. Um, I was talking to a guy recently who was describing the most waspish group of people you could possibly imagine in terms of the old cliche about what it's a wasp. Henry Worthington IV, such a thing. And uh, he was describing people he knows really well in a city in Rhode Island, a very fancy city in many ways. And he said, well, you know, no, he said they're all uh, they're all committed uh, Orthodox practicing Buddhists. 
I said, tell me about that. He said, yes. He said, these people, these, what were once the senior wardens of, of Episcopal churches in James Gould Cousins novels and in uh, places like Chatham, Massachusetts and uh, uh, Cohasset and uh, the North Shore and all these places in Boston, they're now not only Buddhists, but they're practicing Buddhists. And when one of them dies, a Buddhist, uh, uh, usually it's a member of the family, puts on a robe and does a Buddhist service. And, and this is just a fact. It's an amazing and fascinating fact. But what happened at this stage of the game? In uh, 1977, um, uh, Cox wrote a book entitled Turning East, the Promise and Peril of the New Orientalism. And he had gone out to Denver, and he was really very uh, sort of circumspect about all the religious varieties of Buddhism, just like Kerouac, who couldn't have, doesn't, didn't have any time for all the cultural ethnicities and all the different Tibetan versus Mahayana, Hinayana, big vehicle, smaller vehicle, uh, all the different gods and the pranya and the skandhas and he wrote a poem he wrote a poem said the 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 skandhas my ass it's a haiku skandhas is the a buddhist term for the different avenues of in the body which perceive the eyes and the ears and the nose and so forth and he wrote a haiku called simply skanda oh skandhas my ass in other words he was very uh this, he didn't really need to know all the orthodox terminology of another culture he was interested in the in the form noble truths and in the omnipresence of suffering and the possibility of negating suffering through some kind of mental hygiene, which he himself needed and, and f so very uh, propulsively and compellingly. Um, but uh, uh, here you have uh, Cox out there in Naropa Institute, and he's very skeptical of all the Tibetan part of it, but he actually is taught to meditate. This is my point. And it's that, the actual meditation, which is this kind of grounding of all the numberless inner talking that goes on in people, especially if they're people like me who tend to live in my head and are very abstract all the time, not to mention images and feelings and sensations. He, Cox, was, was immediately struck by the effect that meditation had. And here on page 57 of Cox's book, Turning East, he writes this. As the days and weeks went by, I found that although I was fascinated by the art history of Buddhism, it remained somewhat exotic and merely interesting for me. The meditation, however, was something else. From the very outset, from the first hour-long sitting, I sensed that something unusual was happening to me. My level of internal chatter went down. And that's the key sentence. My level of internal chatter chatter went down. He continues, I did not invest situations with so many false hopes and fantasies. I walked away from these sittings feeling clear-headed. I could teach with more precision and listen to people more attentively. Soon the hour or two of sitting was not a chore, but something I looked forward to. I began to sense in myself something many East Turners had told me about in words I had not comprehended. Ironically, the more I meditated following my Buddhist instructor's advice, the more my assigned role as resident Christian theologian at Naropa seemed sensible and right. I even um, saw some interesting things in Jesus, especially uh, Christ's refusal to be what people expected him to be, his unwillingness to be drawn into abstract discussions 
and his constant insistence that if people would only look closely at what was going on in their midst, they would see that the kingdom of God was already coming to them. He finishes this paragraph, Paradoxically, my plunge into Buddhism at Naropa had made me feel more Christian than I had felt when I arrived there. Now, that's here's a how-do-do. He is finding through these sittings, and I'm not going to actually go into what is involved in learning how to do it. I'll let you think about that. I'll let you talk to me. I'll let you uh, talk to people you know and see if you can find out how to do it, because it'll, it'll take you about, about two sessions with someone to get the hang of it, and then two further sessions to kind of check in with somebody who knows what they're doing, uh, hopefully a Christian, if you are a Christian, or not if you're not. You know, you can take it uh, or leave it, but most of the people listening to this will have some kind of Christian heritage or background in some way in their lives, um, you'll find that after about four sessions, you will in fact find that there, you'll not only see that a tremendous amount of what you think in the day-to-day and what you experience and feel is a, is a substanceless or insubstantial trickery of the mind, but you will also uh, feel, as Cox came to feel, uh, you'll see, you'll hear, you'll know that your level of internal chatter has gone down. Well, I think this is very interesting. Now, I'm going to uh, conclude uh, by what um, the fruit of meditation can be for someone who is sort of uh, interested and and feeling that the heart of the Christian tradition lies in grace, that is, gift or one-way love, rather than... uh, rather than uh, exhortation and demand or, uh, you know, the kind of thing that politicians are always doing, you know, making you feel guilty, uh, preaching up a storm to get you to go out and, and do something. Uh, and often people are taken advantage by this. Um, but uh, I'm going to, uh, to, to talk about how meditation connects with grace as opposed to law and exhortation and control and constraint and some kind of inward manipulation and forcedness. And I'm going to say this. If a meditation does in fact uh, produce the mental chatter, uh, like turn down the volume and all the AM, FM, international vibratings that are coming into your head all the time that are constantly uh, hitting you and uh, um, disturbing you and distracting you when, you know, people, sometimes you'll be amazed you won't even listen to what somebody's saying. You all be in your own little world or thinking about something that somebody else's earlier comment triggered in your mind, and you're a million miles away. You're a million miles away. What is that wonderful, uh, heavy country music? Uh, in your eyes, I see the, uh, in the, the light of the smoke of a distant fire. It's about a fellow who sees his girlfriend come in or wife or whoever it is, and he can see that she's been with another man, and she's obviously had a passionate time somewhere else, and he, he sees in her eyes the light of the glint of a distant fire. One of the most upsetting songs ever done. Now, you can YouTube it or find it. It's amazing. Um, but uh, it was 70s, typical classic 70s. Now, that is something. And uh, it just means that, you know, she's not with the guy. She's somewhere else. She's back an hour earlier or a lifetime earlier or back in some her childhood. And you and I are the same. We're constantly uh, punting back to things that have nothing to do with where we are because of this tremendous associative and it churns out associations and I speak as one now
To, uh, to say what this does, uh, the first thing um, that, uh, that meditation does, uh, if I may say, uh, to, to use their language, but also uh, the sort of Christian paradigm of freedom, it gives you, this is point one uh, uh, to conclude this um, podcast, it gives you perception minus construction. In other words, you begin to perceive, hold the constructions. We're constantly constructing. We are just enormously, we're, we're constructing all the time, all these abstractions around us. So, you know, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, Juan Williams, Fox News, uh, MSNBC, those people over there, these people under our noses, that movement over there, the Germans who don't want to assimilate currently, or the... Uh, the whole, all the issues that, you know, uh, someone announced the other day that she was the first Asian American legislator in a, some, in a legislator out there. And I thought to myself, well, yes, I'm glad she is, but, but that's sort of a concept. She's obviously seeing herself as a, as a sort of bunch of predicates uh, that, that are, that are um, different from, from just her and me, as it were. Now, now let me give you a, um, a perception minus construction or perception minus conceptions because again I'm someone who is just in my head everything I hear it touches a song I think of Neil Diamond and after that I think of somebody I knew who loved Neil Diamond then I think of an insane person I knew who loved Neil Diamond so much she hired a plane when there was a report of his disappearance and she was a homeless lady in Santa Monica and then I think about her mother and then I think about Bible studies in the Episcopal Church and then I think about Charleston and then I think about um, South Carolina church policy Politics, and then I think about South Carolina politics, and then I think about Governor Sanford, and then I think about Jenny Sanford, and then I think about someone down in Uruguay or someplace like that, and I go all around the place, and what in the world does 90% of that have to do with me except to churn me up about people I've never met and places that I don't live at? Um, Alan Watts said a very interesting thing. Uh, to take, to note this down if you're writing anything. This is, a, this is a quite a remarkable quote from Alan Watts, who is a very, very, uh, sort of his work is a farrago of many different elements. And somebody said he was, a, he was an authentic fake. And I, I don't, didn't know Alan Watts, although I was in his... Uh, in his uh, bailiwick uh, once, and uh, uh, he did say many interesting things, and I'm sure he said a lot of nonsense, but this is a great thing he said. He said, conventional thinking, Alan Watts wrote in an essay on square zen, beat zen. He was criticizing Kerouac on the one hand and Gary Schneider on the other. But Alan Watts wrote this, conventional thinking confuses the concrete world of nature with the things, events, and values of linguistic and cultural symbolism. Conventional thinking confuses the concrete world of nature. That's where we're sitting right now. I'm sitting at a desk in a, on, a, on, a, uh, on a garage apartment where I record podcasts in my home uh, in Orlando, Florida. Uh, that's the concrete situation I'm in. But uh, what conventional thinking does, it confuses that with the things, events, and values of, of cultural symbolism. So I, I, maybe I'm related to an ideology, or I have this in my background, or I have that in my background, or I have this predilection, or I identify with this candidate. Uh, all those things are good and well, but they are basically symbolisms, because they have to be, because we're not actually there. Very few of us get all upset, whether we get upset on the 
left or on the right ideologically are not sort of getting upset about things that are basically symbolic as far as we are concerned. Occasionally, yes. Occasionally, a cultural symbol cuts in directly where I live. But it's quite occasional. Most of the time, people are getting riled up about linguistic and cultural symbolisms that don't have a direct connection with them, and they get incredibly riled up. Now, um, that's why uh, we want perception minus construction. That is, a constructed or artificial reality or a projected reality, which is what I've lived my whole life in formal ministry, absorbing and then having a counter-projected reality against those who are projecting onto me. I want to be a perceiver, not a conceiver or constructor, first and foremost at least. I want to initially be a perceiver. That's point one. The second thing that um, meditation does, it is, it allows for inspiration minus inhibition. If it started out by giving us perception minus construction slash conception, these are my words, uh, meditation gives us inspiration minus inhibition. Because what people are doing who want to create or have an idea or a spontaneous thought or a loving gesture or the decision to make a risk or to say something they've never said or do something they've never done or, or reach out to someone that they haven't been reaching out to, they are normally people who might have an inspiration, but there's so much inhibition. There's so much accusatory voice. You better not do that. If you do that, the other thing will happen. If you reach out to her, you'll get your hand chopped off. If you reach out to him, you'll get blasted out of the water. If you um, do this particular, if you write this particular article, you'll you'll get it rejected. So just don't do it. If you decide to write that book or that uh, particular, you know, undertake that artistic project or write that little uh, little song that's in your mind, there are all these reasons. You know, we can't all be Steve Perry. You know, <laughs> don't think that you can be foreigner. You know, uh, it, it's it's very unlikely that any of you will touch Lennon McCartney. Well, that's by the way. A, that's not a, a conception. That's a concrete truth. But inspiration needs to be be, be freed or, or shuffed of, sh shucked away of inhibition or law. Inspiration is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul writes in Galatians 5, are peace, joy, love. There's no law against these things, he writes. Patience, kindness, uh, um, fortitude, uh, discretion, self-control, uh, thoughtfulness, uh, kindness. Uh, these things, there's no law against them. In other words, they are inspired, they're fruit, and he says there's no law against them. They're inspiration minus inhibition. People who create, whether they're very young, like the Pretenders were very young when they started out and wrote that wonderful music, Chrissy Hines' early Pretenders band, they were inspired, and for some reason, they were not inhibited. Uh, later on, they got inhibited, as we all do. Often, one's first thought, one's youngest, uh, one's a young person has the greatest inspiration. Before they get famous or they get, they worry about money or they worry about what people think or the critical voice. First thought, best thought. Later on, it's a little different because we, first thought is all laden with the chains you wrought in life. Uh, Marley's chains that are holding you back. <clears throat> I'm constantly dealing with an undertow based upon what people are going to think or say or what people in, in, in my experience of life are going to, how they're going to judge or evaluate this and that. I think I, I might be saying today and it, it cuts down on inspiration. I'm always looking 
looking over my shoulder, looking behind me like the character in Casting the Runes who, who's looking behind him at the demon who's coming on strong. You know, I'm uh, very much aware that uh, uh, we uh, need to allow ourselves to be inspired, whether you call it the universe God or the Holy Spirit, as I would, would the, the spirit who moves us, as St. Paul says, in sighs too deep for words. I want to be inspired minus the undertow. I want to be inspired and led and drawn and constrained without constraint, that is to say, drawn and allow myself to shape my thoughts based upon what comes naturally minus intuition. So I'm closing by saying I haven't given you a lesson on meditation but at all. That's for you to do. And I'm not qualified in any event, although I do find this very worthwhile. We do it because I want to be able to perceive minus all these hitherly built-up constructions in my head. I want to perceive as a thing is, and I want to be inspired, and I want to allow myself to speak and talk and share and write and sing minus inhibition or law or constraint. And this is why meditation is so valuable. And Harvey Cox sure was torpedoed or submarined. He did not expect any of this. And yet the one thing he found that he took away back to where he was, you might laugh, but he did, is that aspect of the turning east known as meditation, for which, of course, we know there are uh, numberless uh, Christian um, uh, precedents for it as well. Uh, this is the uh, end of uh, podcast 20, entitled, I Learned to Yodel. And I will see you in one month's time, right around the 1st of December, with the next in PZ's podcast. God bless you, and thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.